The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Mary Potter Kenyon. Mary graduated from the University of Northern Iowa with a BA in psychology and is the director of the Winthrop Public Library. She's widely published in magazines, newspapers, and anthologies. Her essay on the connection between grief and creativity was published in the January-February 2013 issue of Poets and Writers magazine. Mary writes a weekly couponing column for the Dubuque Telegraph Herald newspaper and conducts writing workshops for libraries, community colleges, and bookstores. Mary does presentations in public speaking on the topics of writing, utilizing your talents in your everyday life, and finding hope and healing in grief. Coupon Crazy, the science, the savings, and the stories behind America's extreme obsession was published by Familius in 2013. Chemotherapist, How Cancer Cured Marriage was released in April 2014 and Refined by Fire, A Journey of Grief and Grace was released in October. Mary lives in Manchester, Iowa with three of her eight children. Welcome, Mary. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. You've had a very busy couple of years, as we can tell from all the books you've released in a very short period of time. Yes, it still boggles my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I want to tell you that I just really found your books and way of writing them very compelling. And um, I think it was partly because you were just willing to tell it all in a way. Um, I didn't have any sense that you were holding back any of your experiences. And that was just wonderful to read. Um, It was very rich for me. Oh, well, thank you. I think that as I wrote, well, part of it was cathartic for me, but also I imagined the reader that if I wasn't honest and open, I wouldn't be able to help them at all because I showed them the good and the bad, and I think that was important. For sure. And and I also feel I was affected by, of course, I knew while I was reading the first book uh, about your husband's uh, treatment for cancer, uh, what what, in a way, the next chapter in the story was that he later died. Right. And I felt so affected by that as I read it. Um, 
you know, I know in my own relationship with my first wife, it changed so completely during her illness, but I never knew, was it knowing she was going to die? Was it uh, the things we went through? Was it, what was it? And um, to read about how much just going through cancer changed you and then how that carried through uh, really moved me very much. Well, I had written that um, the manuscript, the initial manuscript, when he was a survivor of cancer. And um, I thought it was important because when he was diagnosed with cancer, all the books I picked up about caregiving during cancer, the person died at the end. And I, didn't, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I wanted everybody to know that this book, at the start, that this person survived cancer. So that was important. Unfortunately, by the time I um, got the manuscript ready for publication, my husband had passed away, but not from cancer. And I say that Im- immediately in the beginning of the book, because I think a lot of people who are taking care of somebody with cancer don't want to read something about somebody dying, just like somebody who has cancer doesn't want to read about somebody dying of cancer. And so, yes, by the end of the book, my husband is is gone, but it wasn't from cancer. Uh huh, and and yet um, I I feel it's so uh, it does kind of uh, make the message more powerful in the sense that you had that time between the two uh, between his cancer and his death uh, that really seemed very beautiful and deep and rich uh, because of what you changed during the period where he was in treatment. Yes. Is that fair I, to say? That is, that is so true because those five and a half years after my husband's cancer were the best years of our life together, and it was mm-hmm. such a beautiful relationship that some people say, well, that's not fair. You had you found what marriage is supposed to be. You found the answer to how to love some, how to really, really love somebody, and then you lost him. But had my husband died with that cancer, I never would have had those extra, I call them my bonus years, the bonus yes. and a half years after cancer. Had he died with cancer, we wouldn't have had that. And so to me, that, that period of time was a, a gift. Well, I know one thing I used to say to, to my wife was, if if you live with this, she had always a terminal diagnosis, but she just kept living. Uh, if if you live with this, it'll just be more of what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but many people never have that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and that's what I was thinking as reading as I was reading your book. Many people never have that at all. Right. Uh, you had something so precious and beautiful. And, of course, that makes it hurt, too. I, I'm not minimizing that, but um, what an amazing thing to have brought about between you. Yes, yes, and and we both appreciated it. And I'll never forget um, having had that, and I feel lucky. I feel lucky to have had that. And he and I both would say that, uh, you know, this is this is what it's supposed to be like. Um, there's so many people who don't have this. My husband said, mm-hmm. this book was not published when he died, but he said, when are you going to get that book published? I don't think it's about cancer. I think it's about marriage. I think it's about love. And mm. you don't have to have cancer to get to that point. It just happened to be that we got to that point through going through cancer together, me by his side, me being a caregiver. I learned what it was to put this person first. And 
we, we had a lot of talk, talks like that after the cancer treatment because we had that kind of companionship by that time. You know, it might be a good point for the the listeners to hear uh, your your writing voice. Would you mm-hmm. share uh, the the part about the changes in your marriage? Yes, yes, I will. Initially, after David's diagnosis, I would cringe when I read books or articles by cancer survivors who stated that cancer had been a gift in their lives. How could all that David endured be viewed as a gift? The invasive surgery the weeks of chemotherapy and radiation, a gift. Yet after the cancer, David would often reach for my hand and say, if it is cancer that is responsible for our new relationship, then it was all worth it. And I'd reluctantly agree that cancer had been a gift in our lives. We'd both seen the other alternative, patients and survivors who had become bitter and angry, and neither one of us wanted to become that. The difference in our marriage and in our relationship after cancer was dramatic. Post-cancer, I made sure to kiss David goodbye when he, before he went to work. We held hands when we were out in public or alone in the car. We sickened our children with our displays of affection within the walls of our home. I no longer hesitated to discuss touchy subjects with David or felt like I had to hide stressful budget situations with him. The true test of our new partnership came several months after David had recovered from the cancer treatment. I neglected to record a bill payment in my checkbook, which resulted in several overdraft charges before I was contacted by the bank. The charges exceeded $200, and there was no way I could possibly cover them. Knowing I had made a promise to share all financial decisions with my husband, I anxiously awaited his arrival home, my palms sweaty with nerves. I sat at the kitchen table, my stomach in knots. David immediately noticed my worried facial expression when he entered the house. He listened quietly as I explained what had happened. By the time I had told him this whole sordid story, my heart was hammering in my chest and I couldn't meet his eyes. Was he angry? Would he lash out at me like he used to? David reached across the table and gently took my hand in his. I looked up and saw only tenderness and love in his expression. What can I do to help? He asked, and I burst into tears. David had become my true partner in life. While we had developed an extraordinary relationship, we had never been extraordinary people. We were just two flawed humans who eventually discovered what it was to put the other first. Post-cancer, when I gazed into David's eyes, which I did often, I clearly saw his love for me. I saw something else, too. I could see into his very soul. I, I love that because it, it captures an experience I've had of really uh, looking at another human being without any guard, mm-hmm. uh, just being truly with that person. I, I thought you really uh, called that experience out with the way you, the way you wrote it. And I, and I also was very impacted by um, your willingness to describe what wasn't working in your relationship and what you were each contributing to that previous, uh, which I think deepened the message because the change was very evident. Mm-hmm. I, I I think the listeners probably got a little taste of it, you know, in terms of your being so scared he would be angry. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I guess would you, would it be fair to say that where 
what that had created in you was kind of a withdrawal and or what the way you'd responded was to be sort of withdrawn and resentful would that capture it yes it was raising eight kids on a small income and juggling bills and babies it seemed like we kind of lost sight of that newlywed feeling of uh, it's you and me against the world and it and I, I contributed his anger. He had a problem with anger for a long time before he got help with his anger. And then in response to that anger, I started hiding things from him, and I lost respect for him. And it just kind of became this circle of basically two people trying to survive in this, this you know, this world of raising a family. And we lost that partnership that we started our marriage with, and... It was neither, for a long time, I blamed him, and he knew I blamed him, and, but neither, and I don't, I think he just thought that was what marriage was, and then we had Mm. our 25th anniversary party, and here I've got a baby on my back, and I'm walking around this building where the party's being held all by myself, I'm walking around a building wondering, is ours even a marriage to celebrate? You know, is this all there is? Is this what it is? Is this what marriage is? And it was, and he really just thought, you know, this is what it is, you know. This is what families, they struggle with this kind of thing. And so he he didn't know how unhappy I was and what an unhappy mother and unhappy wife I was. And then two years after that 25th anniversary party, when he was diagnosed with cancer, and I looked over at my husband on the way home from this appointment and realized he could die. Mm-hmm. I could lose my husband. And I... I I knew I'd loved him all along, but I thought, I'm going to, I made that conscious decision. I'm going to be the best caregiver I can be and increase his odds for surviving this. And I don't want to lose him, and I love him, and I'm going to make some changes. And that conscious decision to take care of this person the best I could and put him first, maybe for the first time in a very long time, and I, I even know exactly when our marriage seemed to shift and change was during his cancer treatment, and he was so exhausted. And we came home. I was with him at radiation and chemotherapy, and he recovered from a surgery. And he came home from this long day of treatment, and he just fell into this chair exhausted. And I knelt down in front of him, and I took off his socks and shoes, and I started rubbing his feet. In 27 years of marriage, I'd never touched his feet. Mm-hmm. And I looked up, and he had tears in his eyes. And, it's, and I, it just meant so much to him. And I realized, I, yeah, this is the first time in a long time I'm putting this man first. And so it was a shift in our marriage during that cancer treatment. And I can count on one hand the number of times after his cancer treatment in five and a half years that we even raised voices to each other. And it was maybe two times, it, I mean, maybe, and it was just, <laughs> and before we would get up in the morning and it was, the morning of our anniversary party was, and the perfect example is getting dressed and I'm snapping at him and he's snapping at me and a kid pulling on my clothes and wanting me to sit down with them or read him a book or whatever and we're just all the way to the, the party was like 30 miles away, all the way there, we're just snapping at each other. So that was what our marriage was like. And then Mm -hmm. to have this huge dramatic difference and maybe two times in five and a half years, even raising our voice and then immediately apologizing, you know, it's just 
to me it's it was amazing an amazing change in our marriage and whether whether it was my me changing that made him change or him changing that made me change or whatever it was we wished we could capture that and share that with other people because we thought this could have changed before we didn't have to live like that you know the thing is it seemed to me it required that you both change together i think you're because right. um if you're not if if one person is always putting the other one first but it doesn't go the other way mm-hmm. that's actually quite imbalanced Mm-hmm. Uh, what yeah. what I felt was he didn't have the physical energy to be caregiving you the way that you were caregiving him, but he had the emotional energy to be present with you. Yes, and and it did seem quite mutual to me. It was that uh, the way you experienced it. Yes, because before his cancer, if I needed some time away or I. It's like I had to fight for it, and it's like he didn't understand. And mm. then after his cancer, it was him who said, you know what, you, you, you need to get away. You need to go right. I, he wanted me happy, he, he, and he saw what was making me happy was what I needed was some time alone. I needed some time to write. And he became my huge, biggest supporter in giving me that time alone, this gift of time, this gift of knowing that I needed to create, needed that time to write. And he he would say it was like he was in awe of what I was doing, and I would remind him, I couldn't do all this without you. Yet in the end, eventually I had to do that without him. But that's, it was, I felt truly loved. He felt truly loved. And to me that was a gift to know that both of us were putting the other person first. You're right, it was a mutual, and I'm, I yeah, can't say exactly how and when it happened, but it was during the cancer treatment that it happened. Uh, the the, the, the uh, phrase in my head right now is, you became the subjects of each other's hearts. Mm, that's nice. Um, and, you know, that's something that I feel is required if two people are going to work together yeah. on things, is to be the subject, especially hard things, like the bills that, you know, the... the the checks that bounced, that was a hard thing. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, you were subjects of each other's hearts and you could handle it. Right. So that's, that's what I felt as I read about you together. It's time for a break. So uh, we'll come back and talk more about both your relationship and, and your loss of him. And listeners, during this break, you can go to the Good Grief page at voiceamerica.com. Every way to get in touch with me is there. And you can also uh, look at what other guests I've had on the show and listen to any of those in interviews. And you can find your way to Mary Potter Kenyon as well. We'll be right back. your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness if you think you've seen online tv before 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. My guest today is Mary Potter Kenyon. We're talking about her books, Chemotherapist and Refined by Fire. And before the break, we were talking about the really profound changes in your relationship with your husband that happened during his cancer treatment. And the the thing that really stuck with me as an emblem of that was you're calling him beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I was so struck that it wasn't handsome, it wasn't cute, you know, beautiful. <laughs> uh, uh, that's such an evocative um, thing to call a, a man in this culture in particular, yeah? Yes, and I don't know if it's because I saw into his soul because mm-hmm. I started calling him beautiful. The first time I called him beautiful was in the hospital after his surgery, after his cancer. And and he just looked at me and shook his head like, "What are you? why are you calling me beautiful? Because for one thing, you know, after surgery and you haven't washed, you're not able to wash your hair and you, you know, the last thing you feel is good looking or beautiful or whatever. But it was, I was seen into his very soul. It felt like that I was seeing this, all the best of him. And Bar- barriers removed, huh? Yes, and mm. his concern for the children, his concern for me, and how he, and it made me just see him, the best of him, and he was always a good, you know, opening the doors for the old ladies and helping clean off the tables at the restaurant for the waitress, whether they wanted help or not, and fleeing his, his arm around me as we're shopping together, telling me what a good job I did, you know, so that, and I could see that when when he was at his most vulnerable. So I did start to call him beautiful, and and he continued to be amused by that and just didn't get it. But that's that's what I saw him as, as a beautiful, beautiful person. Well, and I suppose being amused by it is is actually a great response, mm-hmm. uh, a sort of sweet, open response to it. Uh, he he allowed himself to be beautiful in your eyes in a way, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yes. Um, you know, many many things in your books were familiar to me in one way or another. Feelings I've had or ways I've looked at things, for sure. 
but it's always the grief experiences that I haven't had that catch me up short. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that you lost three such important people in, in a very brief period of time, your mother, your husband, and your grandson, mm-hmm. uh, just sort of kicked me in the gut. Um, and it made me wonder whether you experienced, you know, every grief is so different. It's it's kind of hard to uh, to know for sure are we actually coming towards grief with different skills as we go along? <laughs> and yet I have a sense we are. What do you think about that? Well, my mother and I think we all expect to lose our parents. So that hit hard because dad had been 25 years and here we lose our mother and all of a sudden we're orphans. And so my mm-hmm. siblings and I had a very, very hard time with losing our mother because that's the last, I think, because that's less apparent. Plus, we got, we had more time to learn to, to know her than our father. And so we were, but we were blindsided by that kind of grief because we'd already lost a parent and we didn't expect it to be so much worse, and yet it was. Mm. And then to have my husband, to lose my husband 17 months later, you would think that maybe having lost my mother, it would prepare me. No, it didn't because it's, mm. It's like losing. It was like losing part of myself. Plus, there yes. was that. I, I imagine there was that unexpected aspect to it too. He was a survivor of cancer, and so I had these journals and tote bags and everything made up with the best is yet to be. You know, the, because I expected the best of our years to be ahead of us, and yet I only had five and a half years, and so I think that was added to it. Then, did losing those two important people help? prepare me for losing a grandson again i don't i don't think so no except mm-hmm. because it's again that's a child and so all of a sudden you're, sure. you're facing something totally different and i could not even imagine the thing that hurt the worst was knowing i couldn't help my daughter through this i couldn't do it for her i couldn't take it for her and so there was that additional pain to know that there was nothing i could do to help her except to tell her you're not going to always feel what you're feeling right now because we are, when we've lost somebody and we, the months go out and the years go out, we know that pain changes. And so sometimes that's the only thing I can say to somebody who just lost a spouse or just lost a, a child or is what you're feeling right, like right now. You're not always going to feel like that because we can't imagine living feeling like that, like those early when we're in the thick of it and so sometimes that's the only thing I can say, but it's lost, it felt like loss piled upon loss piled upon loss, and sometimes it felt so heavy, and it still does some days, especially with the holidays sure. approaching, that I feel this grief right, on this, right below the surface, and I didn't expect that the second Christmas without Jacob that we're looking at, Jacob's my grandson, that it would, it feels like it might even be harder this year because were we numb with it last year? I don't know. But Well, one thing, there's, there's a few, few things that come to my mind. One is, um, I hope I didn't imply you can prepare for a particular loss. What I find for myself is I know I have to grieve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a sense of permission for it. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned to you, my mom just died very recently. Yeah. Um, and, Yes, I I uh, 
am having that experience of my dad died five years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a very different thing to have them both gone. Mm -hmm. So, so I've never experienced this before. Right. But, but I do know that I'm I'm saying yes to it. You know, yeah. uh, whereas uh, during my wife's cancer, I said no for a while before mm -hmm. I said yes, you know, kicking and screaming. And then I finally, you know, allowed whatever yeah. I was experiencing to be true. Um, so that's more what I mm -hmm. what I meant. And that second year thing, that's a very interesting thing to me. It's it's almost like when your grief is at the center of everything. Mm -hmm. You can kind of organize around that. I, um, uh, you know, you expect it to be so hard. Right. And I, I wonder if the second year it doesn't feel a little unexpected, or, uh, you know, uh, that that blindside feeling. Mm -hmm. Is that some of what you're talking about? Yes, and it's just even with different holidays or different special days, they're just the oddest things. It's that's the blindsided is the perfect word for it because we're not expecting it. If, if we didn't celebrate new year's Eve, which my husband, and I didn't, why was new year's Eve so hard for me? Was it partly because I wasn't expecting it? And then I, my daughter's having a hard time this year too, the one who lost the little boy and she didn't expect it. She thought this would be easier holiday to face, but that's, I guess that's the way grief works. The the uh, I, what I recall is I'd be walking down the street and uh, run across a place I'd gone with my wife right. and uh, hadn't even thought about the fact that I'd be passing that. It was very surprising, mm -hmm. you know, things I hadn't forewarned myself about that were the the hardest sometimes. Yes, can we steal ourselves for things? Can we? prepare yourself for something or is it this is it always going to be this way i riding a bike and ahead of me i see a dad and a little girl riding bikes and i start crying on the bike trail but then i have to laugh at myself because i'm thinking you're 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 ridiculous <laughs> you're crying on a bike trail as you're riding a bike because you see a daddy and this little girl and so i can laugh at myself which i think helps too but it's it, yeah just just it hits at the strangest yeah moment well because because you know you're i guess i guess i'll accept the word ridiculous but you also <laughs> know it makes complete sense right <laughs> right it does i know yeah. <laughs> yeah it just it just got you in that corner you hadn't been uh, right. all worked out in for mm -hmm. sure um one thing in particular about your husband's death that had a lot of impact on me was um and this is probably because uh when my wife died uh you know it it was a painstaking you know week of uh, 10 days of coma you know oh, wow. it was very much we knew it was coming for a lot uh, quite a long time and and your experience for, was so different than that um to have had it happen and not even know for a while it had happened and that really impacted me, as as I know it did you, from the way you described it. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you processed that, because that's sort of uh, traumatic, mm -hmm. in a sense, uh, that part of your story, yes? Yeah, yes. So my husband survived his heart attack. He was in the hospital. He comes home. He's at home for three nights. We see a doctor, and the doctor's I said, well, I can't see your heart, but everything's looking pretty good. And and then my husband, during the night, his heart stops. 
and I come downstairs, and my husband's sitting in a chair like he often did, watching the TV's on. I think it's on. I can't quite remember. But I do know the, the remote's in his hand, and he's sitting in a chair, and I'm going to make, make myself some coffee. And I sit down, and I start writing my friend Mary, and I'm writing a letter, and then I think, well, I'll wake him up for his cup of coffee, and I go to touch him, and and he's gone. And that is that is like yesterday, that memory of finding him like that. And yet the horror is that I didn't know that my husband, for at least half an hour, I'm sitting on a couch next to this chair, not knowing my husband's gone. And you think when you love somebody that much and you're so close to them that you would just know. And I'm st- I still have this anger inside. This is probably the only anger I carry in me is at myself for not knowing or if, you know, how could you sit there and write a letter and not know that this person you love so much is gone? How could you just not have sense to that? And, yes, so that's a memory. And when I remember finding him like that and seeing and realizing he's gone, and I can, night after night, I would see that face, of what his face looked like right then, I would replace that memory and consciously replace that memory the night before when I came home from doing this workshop and he just beamed at me as I came through the door and he's smiling and he says it looks like it went well and I say yes it went wonderful and he's just smiling this huge smile so I just replaced that memory I decided mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way I will remember I won't remember finding him like that I will remember what he was like the night before that last night when I didn't know it was our last night and he didn't even sleep next to me that last night he was sleeping downstairs in the chair and that's another thing. Why wasn't I there by him? You know, it's just... All those unreasonable expectations mm-hmm. of ourselves, as wish, as if we could know in advance. Right. Huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and <clears throat> I mean, often I feel that uh, actually being with someone, or I guess I should say their body after they die, can be a good thing. But in that case... Um, that wasn't really your experience because it was so so traumatizing to have not known mm-hmm. and to have not been with him. So um, that's another yeah. aspect I was thinking about as I was uh, as I was reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you're clearly a person with good supports. You have family, you have friends, but it also seemed that everything you went through required some additional resources for those particular experiences, like the friends you made when David was in treatment, Mm -hmm. who were also going through the same thing, um, the people you met through your writing. Mm -hmm. But the relationship that you talked about in the book that kind of made me laugh was when you were talking about not being ready to date, but missing company mm-hmm. and and I think I think he said so God sent me a gay man yes he did am I <laughs> quoting that yes <laughs> accurately yes. <laughs> such a such did. a wonderful sentence I, it, <laughs> I just actually laughed out loud when I when I read that it must well, have been such a surprise to you <laughs> well, it was so unexpected I live in a very small town I didn't know or knowingly know anyone who was in a gay relationship. So it's, I mean, this is really small town Iowa, so it's just you don't encounter different people or different relationships. You just don't very much. And 
it, it was at a point when I really, really missed that male attention. I mean, my husband fawned over me. He just thought I was so amazing and wonderful, and I would hear every day how beautiful I was, even when my hair wasn't done up and no makeup and stuff. And so I was missing that, but I didn't think I wanted to date anybody. And there was it was just a, a period in my life when I really was missing that male, that male attention. And as a writer, this friend of mine said, hey, there's this guy who signed up for friends of the library with saying he's a poet and wanderer of the universe. And she said, you should stalk him on Facebook. <laughs> and so I went on his Facebook, and not only was he a poet, he listed himself as a widower. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And it was November, and we were going to start up this writing um, go to the library a few times a week and write together. And I thought, well, he's a poet. He probably can't find too many creative people in this town. I'll just let him know about this group that we're going to start. And I told him I was starting at this coffee shop that night, starting my NaNoWriMo November writing challenge. And he comes to the coffee to the coffee place, and he starts talking, and it was slowly dawning on me, well, as he said, used the word partner, oh, this is a gay man. That's okay. He's a creative, interesting gay person. And um, I, it took me a second or two to get used to that idea, but then as he talked about the loss of his partner, I was, you know, I practically started crying for him because I thought he has this horrible loss of this person. And he's the one who said to me when he said, well, how long's it been for you? And it had been over a year for him. And I think it was like six months for me. And he said, oh, and his voice dropped an octave. You're in the thick of it. And he knew exactly what I was going through. And so it, we talked for two hours straight, and my daughter was working at the coffee shop that night, and she said she just loved seeing me laugh and seeing me happy. And it was the creative, he's such a creative person that um, I needed that. I needed that. And um, so, yes, I felt like God sent him to me at this this time in my life when I really needed this creative, wonderful friend who'd been through something, who'd lost somebody so important to him. And even my daughter and my kids love him. I mean, he's just such a wonderful friend of mine. But yeah, it was the time I needed it. And sure, it's, it, it's not, I mean, it's not something I'm going to date, but it's a man. Uh-huh. And it's a good, good, he, Tim's a really, really good friend. Mm-hmm. Well, what it made me think of in a broader way, I mean, I, I love that story, but what it made me think of in a broader way is the way that um, uh, our, our opinions about things or our, our assumptions about things, how what we think we believe sometimes changes as a result of grief. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a way we're out of our own box and we have to look at things a little differently. And I, I got that sense of it, that you were just so very open mm-hmm. uh, to whatever it was that seemed to soothe. Uh, and and so that really uh, touched me. Mm-hmm. Well, I it's time for... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. It, it, it's time for a second break. Hold that okay. thought until okay. we get back. Um Take this time, listeners, to email, contact me through my social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+. And I have a Pinterest page, too, with resources and inspiration and and, um, places to find my guests. Or you can email me from my host page. We'll be back after the break. 
Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Hi, this is Cheryl Jones, and you're back with Good Grief. Today I have Mary Potter Kenyon here. We're talking about the losses of her mother, husband, and grandson within three years of each other, and what came out of those losses for her. And Mary, I, I thought it would be nice to bookend this segment with kind of you at the beginning of grief, and then... Uh, towards the end, uh, you later on. Could you share the, the um, I think it was at ten and a half weeks? Yes, it Brief was. At ten and a half weeks. Could you share that with us? Yes, and this opens up my book, and it's actually from my journal, and it's the actual journal entry I wrote on June eighth, two 2012. Grief at ten and a half weeks. It's dawning on me that I will never be loved like David loved me, no matter how much my children, my siblings, or my friends love me. I will never again feel that special love or hold his hand or hug him or kiss him. I'd still leave the kitchen light on every night, and I'm not sure why, but he was the one who always turned it on, and I just can't bear to turn it off. Yesterday, I bolted out of the grocery store when I began crying in the peanut butter aisle because David loved peanut butter sandwiches. I've yet to make it through a high V without crying because I spot the deli where he sat and drank coffee and read the newspaper while I shopped. We never experienced an empty nest. Never traveled outside of Iowa together or flew on an airplane or went to a concert. I cry every Sunday during Mass because I used to hold his hand in church. And now I see older couples holding hands and realize we will never grow old together. And I miss him. I miss him. I miss him. Everything makes me think of him. I hit the buttons on the ATM machine and remember how hard I laughed when he kept touching the screen instead of the buttons. He looked over at me, and I was laughing so hard I couldn't speak, so he started laughing, too. There we were, sitting in a car at the ATM, laughing so hard we cried. Then we went out for a shared banana split and laughed some more. And I don't think I will ever want to eat a banana split again. Everyone says, thank God you have the children. And I think, yes, 
but it is because I have young children at home that I cannot scream, cannot even moan in the night with an eight-year-old next to me. This morning I watched Abby singing at Vacation Bible School, and I looked for some joy, some laughter, or even a tidbit of happiness from her. Mostly it is anger. She called me stupid after the program because I couldn't find the shirt she'd made, so I sobbed in the car, and then I really felt stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid with grief. I hate you, she railed, and I saw the horrified looks on the faces of the other women saying loud and clear that I am a horrible mother with an awful child. On the way home, I took Abby to the gravesite, and we both sobbed, hugging each other, and she said she was sorry, and she doesn't know why she says those things. I can't stop writing and talking about it, even to strangers. A support group email I get in my inbox every day informs me that at some point people might get bored with grief, my grief and it would no longer be appropriate to share with them. Am I at that point? Because maybe it is now, at ten and a half weeks, that I'm supposed to be better. And how will I know who I can continue to share my grief with? I want someone to tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Please tell me how to do this. The end of that passage is just so poignant for me because no one can tell you how to do it, yet you, you want someone <laughs> yes, to just give you instructions. Yes, exactly. And, and of course, uh, I, I did enjoy reading, enjoy, that's an odd word, but mm. I did enjoy reading um, accounts of other people's grief. But I wouldn't say... I didn't like how-to books actually very much at all. I tried to read them. They didn't yeah. help. Um, but other people's stories help, but it still wasn't my story. It wasn't my grief. You, you kind of have to do your own, don't you? I just want to see they survived, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. I wanted them to see exactly. them come out on the other side. Yeah. One of my teachers, Stephen Levine, calls it the Braille method, that you have to feel your way along. Mm-hmm. and sometimes crawling on the floor, uh, that always resonated with me. Mm-hmm. How long do you suppose it took you to just accept that you were going to have to, you know, do it your way or, um, uh, you know, that there weren't going to be instructions? I, 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 didn't, I don't think it took too long. I, I do know that I read a lot of books by authors like C.S. Lewis, Medley Angle, Joan Didion, and realized I was going to have to find my own way, and I was turning to the Bible, and just, it, like, like you said, it felt like I was feeling my way in the dark and stumbling mm-hmm. and, like, feeling for the light. And, but I would see these little glimpses of light. I would see these little glimpses, and I, I, was, I knew, you know, that I was going to be okay, and it didn't take too long, but it, it, it didn't make it that much easier to stumble around the dark. It just, I, I knew somewhere deep inside me, I, I knew I was going to find my way. But it was my own way, and I did have to find it myself. Well, that is something, too, that stood out in the book, uh, the sense in which um, there's a sense sometimes in those times, at least there was for me and seemed to be for you, of, of kind of things coming ar- along at the right moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a very open state, or it was for me, so that, you know, I felt as if I had some helper angels along the way. I was thinking about that when you talked about um, 
wanting some way into being comforted by reading the Bible and then having someone send you some verses right around the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, that sense of synchronicity, yeah? I had so many things like that happen that I would get what I needed right when I needed it or some, and I never knew, is this this dime, this shiny dime from David? Is it from my mother? Is it from God? But all I know is there was messages all along the way, and I still, and I think if we're open to that, we will have that, because I I still have that. So many, oh my gosh, I can't even begin to say all the so-called coincidences that have happened in my life that I know they're not coincidences. It's just like a guide, and and I never, like when Abby would find the coins, I'd say, those are from your daddy. And Mm -hmm. my grandson was finding tons of coins, and he loved his grandpa, and he was just... I would vacuum before he came, and he would just find coins, and he'd hold out his little palm with all these coins, and I, I envied that, and mm-hmm. that's, they needed that, and I, I would find things that would happen in my life that, and and I that's a that was a beautiful part of it, and I still have that, and I hold on to that, and I love it. Yes, and then uh, maybe a little bit paradoxically, it it also seemed as if you. Certain things you used to depend on others to do, you needed to do yourself. For instance, when you bought the car, uh, that was such a great. Um, I could see that. I could see that you know frugal you from previously coming into the experience, but there was also something new. And regardless of all the help you could have found, you seemed almost determined to do it yourself. Would that yes. be fair to say? Yes, and I wasn't ever sure why, because I would have a brother who would have helped me. I had a son who would have helped me find a car, and I had people saying, don't make any big purchases or, you know, right after you lose somebody. And yet all along, it's like inside, I knew what I was going to do, and I did it. And I enjoyed doing it, and it made me feel stronger. Mm -hmm. And it felt like David was guiding me in that, because he'd been talking about that what he was going to get for me. It would have been nice if I listened to him because I did have to try to figure out what it was that he was going to buy <laughs> for me. But you know, I just thought he was, you know, dreaming. But he was saying, you know, I want you safe on the road. You're going to, you know, this is what I want for you. And so I ignored all all the people who said, don't make a big purchase. And I didn't ask for help, and I did it myself. And to this day, I feel good about it. <laughs> I, you know, I, when I'm working with people who are grieving, I, I always add an end on that sentence, which is, unless you're really sure. Mm-hmm. Because there is sometimes a sureness that comes at that moment that's very authentic, that's very true. Mm-hmm. And and doesn't, doesn't tend to be a mistake, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, I, I, it, it remind the car story reminded me of after my wife died and, um, I was in a store buying, she, she died in October. I was in a store buying Christmas presents and there was a, like, uh, maybe a foot tall, very beautiful, very unusual looking angel. Mm-hmm. And, and I absolutely heard her in my head say, that's, that's for you, buy it. Oh. And I still think of it, it's on my mantle, I still think of it as a gift from her. Hmm. Because there's no, there There was nothing in me, you know, I thought it was nice, but I wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I definitely have that sense of uh, having been gifted. Yes. Um, 
so I, I that's the story that popped to my head when I read about the car. Mm-hmm. And well, I'm glad I, you said that because I had my husband tell me to buy this jacket. <laughs> I, I didn't put that in the book, but yes, he, I uh, heard it and I bought it. <laughs> well, Mary, let's let's end with the segment of the excerpt of you two years later. Because I think that's such a beautiful way to end our, our conversation today. Okay. What is life like two years after the loss of David? A better question might be, what am I like? Who are you? I'd wondered just days before when I'd asked a stranger if I could hug her. She'd stopped at my library to ask if I was the one who'd written a book on cancer. When I told her that I was, she began telling me about her husband. As soon as she said the word cancer... My breath caught in my throat. I recognized the waver in her voice and the tears glistening in her eyes. The doctors have told him to put his affairs in order, she continued, and I glanced down at the tote bag near my feet as my heart lurched with her words. Suddenly, I understood the compulsion to add one of my books to the tote that morning, despite the fact that I'd already added it to our library shelf. I had learned to listen to those small, quiet urgings of the heart. You don't happen to have one of your books with you, she asked, and I pulled it out and handed it to her. You can have it. This was the third copy I'd given away in a week. It was occurring to me that perhaps this was going to be a book I would be giving away more than selling. There are a lot of hurting people in the world, a lot of cancer patients and caregivers. It was then I asked the woman if I could give her a hug. I was going to ask you for one, she admitted as I came around the desk and my arms encircled her. A single sob escaped her as I tightened the embrace. Just two years ago, I'm not sure I would have known to hug her. Before my husband's cancer in 2006, the possibility wouldn't even have crossed my mind. I rarely hugged anyone back then outside of my own family, and even then, the hug sometimes felt forced and awkward. After she left, I sat at my desk and cried a little, considering the very real possibility that this woman in her 40s would likely need my upcoming grief book by the end of the year. My daughter Elizabeth snorted with apparent bemusement when I related the encounter to her on the phone that evening. You hugged her? A complete stranger? Who are you? Exactly. Who am I? Who is this woman who lived most of the first 50 years of her life not trusting others, particularly females, because they had been her biggest tormentors in elementary school? How did the woman with only a handful of friends outside of her siblings become the kind of person who would reach out to hug a stranger? and then shed tears of empathy for her. I think of my mother, who on bus trips would come home with names and addresses of strangers she had befriended, and my husband, who during and after his cancer treatment would casually fling his arm around someone's shoulder or tell them that he loved them. Loved them. I remember feeling envious of the ease in which he said those words. A mutual friend of ours and mine at his wake told me how much it had meant to her that the last time she'd seen him, he'd thrown his arms around her and blurted out that he loved her. Loved her. I'd been standing next to him that day, and I remember clearly my reaction. The initial surprise at his words, then the immediately understanding. She was sweet, caring, and seemed very alone in the world, followed by a swift and sharp envy. That is so nice you hugged her and told her you loved her. I told him in the car on the way home, I wish I could be more like you in that way. And now I am. I am saddened that it took the loss of a special man for me to become more like the best in him. 
Losing David and Jacob has truly refined me. The woman I have become is a much nicer, more loving, more empathetic one than the woman I once was. It occurs to me that I am now who God meant me to be all along. I so love that last line, Mary. Uh, and it fits with an idea I have of, of us really becoming ourselves through facing, facing our hardest times. Mm-hmm. That that's part of what we're doing. I thank you so much for being here today. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank and we'll, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Next Absolutely. Next week, listeners, you're welcome. Join me when I'm talking with Tom Sweetman, who wrote From Grief to Greatness, a collection of true stories and lessons on living life after loss, after the loss of his mother. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.